week we spent the entirety of our time together thinking about what Paul called the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And this is the first piece of the spiritual armor that every believer is to take up, in Paul's words, and put on in order to make himself battle ready against the spiritual forces at work to tempt us to sin against God. Now, you remember from last time that we learned that each of the seven pieces of armor that Paul describes assumes both a doctrine and a discipline. Both a doctrine and a discipline to be brought to bear whenever we find ourselves tempted to sin against God. Each piece of armor is given to remind us of basic truths and practices of the Christian life. In fact, the idea of spiritual armor... The idea of spiritual armor is really just a rhetorical device that the Apostle Paul borrows from the prophet Isaiah to help us think about the basic truths and basic disciplines of the Christian life. Now, the first piece of the armor of God Paul wants us to think about is the belt of truth. And we learned last week that the doctrine that Paul was pointing us to was the doctrine of absolute truth, which is grounded in an absolute God. In other words, since God exists and all things find their origin in him, then whenever it comes to discerning what is true, we merely need to take whatever that proposition is and place it up against the word of God. What has God said about this? And thereby we find what is true. And so if you want to know what is really true, just compare it with the word of God. We also discovered that this doctrine comes with a Christian discipline. We are not only to know the truth, we are to live the truth. We are to be men and women whose lives are characterized by truth. Every man and woman of God is called to speak the truth, live the truth, and love the truth. To listen to our words is to hear truth. To watch the way we live is to see truth. To describe our life's ambition is to say that we are absolutely committed to the truth. That's what our lives are all about. And every believer came to Christ by the truth. And so we speak the truth, live the truth, and love the truth. And that always brings us back to the Word of God. So that the worst thing that can be discovered about a professing Christian is that they are a hypocrite who speaks the truth but lives a lie. And so putting on the belt of truth means, number one, that we know what the truth is. And secondly, that we are living according to the truth. The point Paul is making here is that if you're not living in the truth, if your heart is racked with secret sin that only you and the Lord really know about and you are unwilling to deal with it, then you have thrown the door of your heart wide open for the enemy to attack. You are easy prey for the enemy, the accuser who seeks like a lion whom he may devour. And your heart is what's for dinner for the enemy. He wants to eat your heart. He wants to destroy your faith completely. On the other hand, if you understand what Paul is saying and take his advice, if you are walking in the truth and your conscience is clear, your conscience is clean before God, the the devil is going to find it difficult to find a foothold in your life. That doesn't mean you won't be tempted. And that doesn't mean that you won't sin, because there are other influences other than the devil tempting you to sin. We know that the world and the flesh are both 
offering us temptation every day of our lives that we might sin against God. But you are going to be protected against Satan's attacks and will be better able to resist him in the evil day if you obey the word of God. And so God's call upon the life of a Christian soldier is, first of all, to stand truthfully. And you remember in our text, we are in Ephesians chapter 6, the whole point is that you will put on the armor so that in the end you will be found standing, having done everything to stand. You're a soldier. You've been given a piece of strategic real estate. You've been given ground to protect. And the goal is that at the end of the battle, when your commander comes to check on your position, he finds you standing your ground. If you're going to do that, number one, you must stand truthfully. You must wear, as it were, the belt of truth. And so the first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The second piece of spiritual armor we read about is in Ephesians 6 and verse 14. And there we read, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so the second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what's that? Well, every Roman soldier, when he went to battle, would wear not only a leather belt to support his middle and to hold all the other pieces together, he also wore a breastplate as well. He wore a breastplate. Now, the breastplate was called the thorax, a single piece of metal which covered the front of his body. Its function was to ward off the deadly thrust of the short sword by other soldiers, thus protecting his vital organs, especially his heart. Now, if you want to get an idea of what that looked like, and, and for the Spaniards it was different than the Romans, but everybody remembers, you know, pictures of the conquistadors who went down into South America and they wore the funny, you know, metal helmet, but then they wore this big breastplate, so the whole front of their body was covered in, in this metal can, so to speak, so that anything that hit them would bounce off. And that's why so few men, when it came time to uh, dispatch the Indians in South, South, uh, South Carolina, South America, um, that's why so few men were able to do it. How were so few men able to overcome so many Indians? And I know that there is a lot involved more than just warfare. But listen, those guys were protected. Anything that hit them in the head or hit them in the chest just bounced off. And that's what Paul has in mind. Again, Paul is describing both a doctrine and a discipline in our fight against sin. So what's the doctrine? What's the doctrine? When it comes to the breastplate of righteousness, what's the doctrine that he's alluding to? Well, he's alluding to, I think, the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Now, those of you who are coming in early on Sunday morning to my systematic theology class, we'll get to this someday, but the doctrine of imputed righteousness is a key doctrine for every believer to understand. And here's, it, here's what it is, basically. Imputed righteousness is the very heart of the gospel. It is the very heart of the gospel. It teaches that the only way to approach God is not through righteousness that is our own. In other words, you can't say, well, I'll come to God as soon as I get my life cleaned up. You know, people say that, right? You share the gospel and they say, well, you know, I really want to come to God, but I've got to get my life cleaned up first. No, no, no. That is self-righteousness. 
That is not imputed righteousness. You can't come to God by your own righteousness. Because your righteousness must be greater than the Pharisees. And how much greater? Well, Jesus says that, and in Matthew 5, he says again, Therefore you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it's not your own righteousness. It is a righteousness that has been earned for us and given to us by grace. It is what the Reformers used to call uh, the righteousness that is extra nos. In other words, it comes from outside, extra of ourselves. It is a gift. It is a righteousness that we don't have, we desperately need, but we can't earn. It is a righteousness that is given by grace to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to us Gentiles. And as Paul explained it in Romans 10, he said this, and I love this text, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or you take the prepositional phrase out of there, and it's Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is one of our favorite texts around here. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In him. It is not our righteousness. It is his righteousness given to us or another way of saying it, because you you may be thinking, what do you mean given to us? Does it show up by UPS? How do we receive this righteousness? No, think of it this way. It's like here is your uh, uh, your register, your journal, your uh, your books. And God is keeping in the books a record of all of your righteousness and all of your sin. On the left side is all of your righteousness. On the right side is all of your sin. But if you were to look at your book before Christ, you would find all sin and no righteousness. Nothing you've ever done previous to receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness accounts for anything except your demerit. It adds no merit to your account before God. So God looks at at your record and says, oh, my goodness, look at the debt. You've got all debt. Everything on here is sin. On the other hand, he looks at the other book, and that's the Lord Jesus' book. And he's got a, uh, a, a, a page that demonstrates all of his uh, failings, all of his shortcomings, and on another side, all of his righteousness. And guess what? When God looks at that, there are no shortcomings. There is no sin. It is perfect righteousness. The page on the right side is completely full of righteousness, genuine righteousness. So how do we get that righteousness? The only way to get it is for God to give it. We receive it by his grace. That is imputed righteousness. And it's the only way any man can be saved, or any woman or child too. We must have righteousness. But Paul says, not a righteousness that is of, of, uh, that is of the law. It's not my own righteousness, but that which is given to me from Christ Now, we could spend the entire morning just reading the many, many scriptures that teach us that the only righteousness that can satisfy the demands of God's holy law is his own righteousness granted us in Christ. God's law is a reflection of God's character. If we are going to fellowship with God, we must measure up to the law, which is the measure of truth for life 
Otherwise, we can't fellowship with God. We can't live with him for eternity. We don't even have any hope of getting through the front door. The only way that's going to happen is if we come before him and he looks at us with those piercing holy eyes and sees holiness completely. Problem is, we don't have it. It's something that we desperately need and we don't have and we can't earn. The only way we can get it is if he, God the Father, gives it to us by his grace in Christ. Christ for righteousness. To all who believe. That is as opposed to Christ for righteousness to all who work. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. It is Christ for for righteousness to all who come in faith, believing, God, the only way I can come and stand before you is if you graciously give me what I can't get on my own through Christ. And I believe Jesus earned that righteousness by his life And he paid for my unrighteousness by his death. And that's the object of my faith. And that's the gospel. If you're trusting in anything but that, you're lost. If you're trusting in anything but that, you're going to hell. I mean, we just can't dance around this, folks. Eternity is at stake. Life and death are at stake. And so we could spend the entire morning, and I'm tempted to. Here I keep going on and on, but this is the most glorious passage, in the, I mean, glorious truth in the whole Bible. But once this righteousness has been sovereignly and graciously granted to our account, the accuser of our soul, and again, we're talking about spiritual warfare, right? The accuser of our soul now has no case against us before God. The name Satan means accuser and when we by faith receive the righteousness of christ all of our sin is blotted out there is nothing of substance for the accuser to take before the throne of god and say look at this one do you see his sin and the father says no i see christ We've been forgiven. There are no accusations. Throw them as he will. They will not stick. So much so that Paul asks in Romans 8, 33, the great eight, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. You know what that means? It means whenever the accuser comes and says, did you see his sin? Did you see his sin? Look, he's sinning. And the Lord says, doesn't stick. Doesn't stick. One of the most common strategies of the devil is to impose upon us a false sense of guilt for sins that have already been forgiven. The only way to combat that is to strengthen yourself with the truth of Christ's imputed righteousness. Listen, this doesn't mean we have a license to sin. Paul deals with that in Romans uh, chapter uh, 6. And flip over there just real briefly. I promise, briefly. Romans 6. And so Paul says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin, this is verse 1, so that grace may increase? 
You know, every time you sin, God's grace in Christ just overflows. It has to spill out more and more. Well, hey, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, the more Christ's grace overflows, the more the glory of Christ is magnified. Isn't that true? Yes, it's true. Well, then it makes sense. Let's sin. Christ will be glorified. That's exactly, if that's what you think when you come to this text, when you get through chapter 5 of Romans, having begun in chapter 1, and you get to that kind of thinking, listen, if you're thinking that by the time you get to uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 1, you're right on track. You are right on track. You're beginning to understand how lavish is the grace of God. You're beginning to understand that there is no way that sin can overcome the grace of God on the part of a believer. And so Paul doesn't argue backwards from there. He simply says this, May it never be. Meganoita in the Greek. Two words. Meganoita. May it never be. How shall we who live to sin, or how, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk how? In newness of life. We don't sin anymore. We do everything in Christ's power, wearing the armor of God to resist sin in the evil day, so that... When the accuser comes to accuse us, there's nothing there. And when the Lord comes to inspect our lives, we're still standing. And then Paul goes on to explain that if we give ourselves over to sin, that's what we'll be enslaved to. You could be enslaved to sin, and that would be a horrible thing, considering all that God has done to free you from that. We sing about this truth, beloved. You know, talk about minds engaged in hearts of flame, right? You engage your mind in this doctrine. And then you sing about it. You sing glory to God. We sing. We sing. I'll never forget one day when I was uh, in the office and I went to Charlie and he asked how I was doing. And I said, you know, I'm struggling. Man. I know, I know I've confessed sin in the past. And for some reason, I don't know why, the, the, the devil's just bringing it back up, or maybe it's just my flesh. I don't know who to give credit to, but I'm struggling. And he handed me the song. It was before we started singing it here. And the second verse says this, When Satan tempts me to despair, reminds me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's the gospel. If anybody ever comes to you and says, tell me, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? My, my answer always, I try to make it this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's why He let me in. It's all for His glory. 
It's all for the exaltation of Christ and the purification of his saints. This is central to our strength in the battlefield of temptation. But be warned, beloved, because with this doctrine, there comes a discipline. In fact, every doctrine must produce the fruit of discipline in order to be a powerful weapon against temptation. Otherwise, we've got nothing. We've got a theory. We don't have armor. You don't want a theory. You don't want a strategy. You want armor. The doctrine of imputed righteousness should bear the fruit. Listen, the doctrine of imputed righteousness should bear the fruit of practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. Christ's righteousness to us must be evidenced by Christ's righteousness in us. All of Christ's righteousness that has been granted on our account, on the record books, to us, should be evidenced in our lives, in us, and through us. Listen, we all know people who claim to believe in Christ's righteousness, but whose lives are consistently defeated by sin. Could it be that the absence of living fruit might be evidence of a dead root? If there isn't isn't any sweet fruit of righteousness, then perhaps the fruit is dead. You say, where do you get that? James. James, who says faith without works, fruit is what? Dead. If you say you have the root of faith and you don't have the fruit of righteousness, you're dead. You have no spiritual life. You're playing a religious game. You're not one of his. You may be religious. You may be committed to your local church. But you're not born again. And you don't belong to him. At least you should have no confidence that you belong to him. We all know people like this. Whenever it comes to this issue, and, and frankly in America, because we're we're so blessed with such freedom and prosperity that we find ourselves in the same position that Israel was in when it entered the promised land. And the Lord told them they would face this. When you enter the promised land and you prosper, be, beware lest you forget me. And this is what happens to us. We're comfortable. We're prosperous. We have nice homes. We have nice families. We live in a free society. We're able to do what we want. And the limits that are on us are there primarily for our good so that we will prosper all the more and the system works for the most part. But there's a danger here. And the danger is that we would become antinomian. You know what? That's a big word. I understand that. Anti means not. Nomian comes from the Greek word namas, which means law. No law. No law. We'll become licentious is another old term. Licentious means, hey, we've got a license to do whatever we want. We're under grace, right? Anytime we sin, the Lord Jesus is glorified because more grace is poured out. Hey, eat, drink, and be merry. There's no law. I mean, Paul says that, right? We're not under law. We're under grace. No, you are under the law of Christ. What does love for Christ demand of you? You should demand righteousness. The theological, positional righteousness that you've been given should result in practical righteousness. If it's not resulting in practical righteousness, then perhaps you don't have the positional righteousness to start with. If there's no fruit, there's no root. 
And the Apostle John made this explicit. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. And turn there because I want you to see it. If you go to the book of Revelation and turn back a couple of pages. 1 John chapter 3. And Rodney read this for us this morning, a longer section, but here's the gist of it in these two verses, 7 and 8. The Apostle John writes this, because this is the issue he's dealing with. People were saying, listen, I believe in Jesus. James was dealing with the same issue. But John was dealing it even in his day, first century. This was already happening. I believe in Jesus. And they were coming to the church and pretending to be believers. They were false brothers. Because the evidence of their life condemned them as false brothers. They were unbelievers in the church. And so how do we know the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? It's so complicated. I mean, there's, there's these hair-splitting differences of theological persuasion that will lead you in one way or the other. And John comes back and says, it's not that complicated. It's actually pretty simple. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Little children, in other words, uh, I'm not talking to theologians here. Any child can get this. Children, children, listen to me. Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he, that is the Lord Jesus, is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. It's that simple. You see somebody who's practicing righteousness, it may very well be that they're a child of God. That's not a definitive statement on it. But it may very well be. If they hold to the righteousness of God in Christ for their salvation and they have a righteous life, then there is good evidence to believe that they're a child of God. But if they say, yes, I believe in the righteousness of God in Christ, in Christ and that's what I'm trusting in, and yet their life is a mess of, of habitual sin, John says, the Lord Jesus came to destroy that. Why do you think he died? It shouldn't be in your life. Continual practicing of sin. If you're continually living in unbelief, like I said last week, we got a name for that. Unbeliever. You're an unbeliever. And we should have no confidence that you're a child of God. 1 Peter 1.15 the Apostle Peter says the same thing. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You're not ignorant anymore. You're not blind. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. Because it is written in the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy. Not, gee, I really wish you would get some holiness. Gee, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying. No, if you have the Holy Spirit, your life, your heart will tend toward holiness. And when you sin, there will be the conviction of guilt and the, the appropriate discipline to get you back in the right direction. It's never perfection. It is direction. But the direction is always moving toward holiness. And that should be characteristic of our lives. 
Listen, I know how the Christian life works, and I'm familiar with Romans 7, where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't do, those are the things I want to do. Yes, the Spirit wages war against the flesh. That will always be the case, and that's why we're in Ephesians 6, because it is a battle, and we don't always win. But in the end, in the end, when you stand to give your final account, will the Lord look at your life and say, you were faithful, well done. Good and faithful servant. Good and faithful soldier. You fought against sin. You persevered. You overcame the evil one. I believe every believer, every true believer, will stand before God, not only with imputed righteousness on their account, but also with a life of evident Practical righteousness so that you can see that person and say, that person is holy. Or that person is growing in holiness. Do you want to be found standing when the battle is over? Then you must stand truthfully. And you must stand, listen, obediently. The bottom line, beloved, is that righteousness comes by simple obedience to God's word. Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord? Lord, stop calling me that if you're not willing to obey what I say. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Practical righteousness is simple obedience to the word. And so let me ask you, what is it that you know the Lord wants you to do and you are unwilling to do it? Or what is it in your life that God wants you to stop doing because his word reveals that that's what he wants and you are unwilling to stop doing it? In other words, what area of your life do you find that you are still being rebellious and disobedient? At that point, your armor is ripped open and the enemy has an easy shot at your heart. You're in danger. You're in danger. And there's only one way to weld that armor shut. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all un- unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Do you want to be found standing when the battle is over? Then you need to stand truthfully, Yes. But you must also stand obediently. And so Paul would have us dress ourselves with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. But thirdly, we must put on the shoes of the gospel. More specifically, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Look at verse 15 in Ephesians 6. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, the image Paul has in mind comes from the Roman soldier's war boot. It's called the caliga, or half boot, which was the legionnaires uh, regularly wore this when they were on duty. It was an open-toed leather boot with a heavily nailed stud sole, which was tied to the ankles and the shins with strap, with various straps, thongs. And they gave foot traction and prevented sliding And obviously the whole point was you've been given this piece of ground to stand on when the enemy attacks, be found standing. 
And so you have to have the proper shoes. And when the Apostle Paul is looking at the soldier who perhaps is in either his cell or in his rented house where he is under house arrest, he looks at this soldier, and he's probably not dressed in full armor because he's not going to battle the Apostle Paul, but there's some basic things that they always wore. And one thing that they always wore was the regimented shoes. And Paul says, you know what? That reminds me of the gospel of peace. Now, there is a good deal of debate in the theological community as to what Paul has in mind here. But I think many of the problems come really from over-analysis. Sometimes you read theologians and you think, oh, my goodness, they've gone so deep. I think their submarine has crashed. And nobody knows where they're at. What is the doctrine that stands behind the image of the shoes? Well, clearly it's the gospel. He says it's the gospel. But why does Paul refer to it as the gospel of peace? Peace being the qualifier. When I think of the gospel in this respect, I'm thinking about the gospel that brings peace. Now that's significant because that gives us a little bit of a hint of what Paul was thinking about. I mean, he could have gone anywhere with the gospel, right? He could have made any of the pieces of the armor. He could have called the helmet the gospel, but he doesn't. He calls it the helmet of salvation, and we'll explain the difference when we get there. He could have called the sword the gospel. He could have called the, the shield the gospel. He could have used that analogy for any one of these pieces. Why the shoes? And why peace? Well, simply stated, peace is what the gospel produces when it is received in faith. More specifically, what the gospel produces with us is peace with who? God. Peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, now that's, that's the previous piece of armor, right? It's imputed righteousness. Therefore, having been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me take a, a step aside here and show you. Do you see how all of these doctrines kind of go together? You see the overlap here? Paul's not coming up with any new doctrine, and he's not coming up with any new discipline. These are the basic truths of the Christian life that he's putting in fresh terms using uh, a rhetorical device that he borrows from Isaiah. And so the shoes are the gospel of peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the truly amazing thing about this peace, however, is what it brought about for our benefit. You see... Usually when two enemies sign a treaty, when they sign a treaty like we did with Japan after World War II, we make a promise. We will not attack you anymore. We will not maim your children or blow up your houses or step on your chickens or anything else. We will do no harm against you. That is not the covenant that God signed with us. That is a piece of it. I will not pour my wrath out on you. The war is over. But I not only promise not to pour out my wrath, I now adopt you as my son, my daughter, and make you an heir to all of my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I not only promise to do no more harm, no harm, I promise to bless you 
with infinite mercy, with infinite grace, with infinite glory, so that it can only be described in terms of being seated with Christ on the throne of God. The warfare is over. You want to know about true spiritual warfare? You know what the goal of spiritual warfare is? To keep you an enemy of God. That's what the spiritual warfare is all about. All of it. To blind you, to deceive you, to ensnare you so that you in the end will not be found standing. You will be found an enemy of God. And then the last battle will occur. And the incineration of his enemies will continue for eternity. Peace, says the gospel. A truce, but not only a truce, an adoption. So that we are no longer not doing any harm to the enemy, but we are blessing him. That's what God does for us. The peace that the gospel brings is infinitely better than any kind of peace ever known in human warfare. And the peace Paul speaks of here is the peace that not only removes the threat of eternal wrath, but replaces it with a promise, listen, of eternal love. It replaces eternal wrath with eternal love. Now we are no longer enemies, but children and heirs to the kingdom. Now we are no longer separated from God. We are united with him in Christ. Now we are not his enemies. We are his friends. And now we are soldiers in his army. And that's what the gospel of peace is all about. Standing with our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace means that we stand in the confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, and his commitment to fight for us. He is our mighty fortress. He is our strong tower. He is our shield, our defender. And because of this, we are not only able to stand truthfully, and we're not only able to stand obediently, but we are now able to stand, listen, we are able to stand fearlessly. Fearlessly. There are some who, when they preach, so exalt the enemy. They spend all their time talking about the evil one and Satan and his devices and how we should be afraid, and his power, and his snares, and how we should fear him? No. Is he powerful? Yes. Is he a schemer? Yes. Is he a lion? Yes. But we have no need to fear. We can be fearless. Why? Because we have peace with God. We are serving God. Now we stand before the enemy like Joshua stood before Jericho. Lord, what do you want me to do? Sing, worship, march. I'll do the rest. Just be obedient. Just live a holy life before me. Just keep my law, is what he told Joshua. To us, he says, keep living by faith in my promises to be gracious to you through Christ in the next moment. Just stand. Just stand. 
Stand upon my grace. Stand upon my promise to win the victory. And you know what? When I say blow, you blow your trumpet as loud as you can. Be faithful in speaking forth the truth, either to others or to your own heart. Wear the belt of truth. Speak the truth to others and to yourself. Let it well up within you as the breastplate of righteousness, righteous living. And then have no fear. Your feet are grounded in the gospel which brought you peace with me, which means you will defeat the enemy. I will never allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. I'll never allow an enemy to get uh, close and any enemy stronger than you are in Christ to get anywhere near you. I will always provide a way of escape. That's his promise. I will always provide a way of victory. You just keep the armor on. Keep living the truth and loving the truth and speaking the truth. Keep living righteous, holy, obediently. And keep those shoes planted firmly, understanding this truth, that God has made peace with you through his Son, and now there is no reason to fear your enemy. God is now your defender. How did that happen? Through the gospel of peace. You know what the opposite of peace is? Fear. You say, well, I think it's anxiety. It, that's fear. I think it's worry. It's, that's fear. I mean, there are, there are probably half a dozen terms. We say, uh, uh, you know, we don't have time to get into all the terms. But there are many varieties of fear. It's all fear. It's all fear. And yet the scriptures come again and again and again. And God says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand your ground. Keep your feet planted on the gospel. As Jerry Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourself every day of your life. And stand your ground. It is the gospel by which God's postures change from being our enemy to being our defender. And so now we stand against the enemy knowing that God is for us. As he was with Moses... So he is for us. As he was with Joshua, so he is with us. As he was with Jehoshaphat, so he is with us. Determined to defend and empower us to do on the battlefield of temptation what could never have been done otherwise. God is for us. The gospel has made him our deliverer. The gospel has made him our mighty fortress. We need no fear. And though a host camp against me, Psalm 27, 3 says, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Why? Because the gospel has made peace between me and God, and now he is my defender. Therefore, I can stand on the battlefield. I need not fear, for greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. How did that happen? The gospel made it happen. It is the gospel of peace. It is the gospel, ironically, the gospel of peace by which we are able to wage war against the flesh and the devil. And so, beloved, Paul is telling us that the secret to victory in battle against sin, and you're tempted, I know you are, I am too, 
And sometimes we give in to temptation. And when we do, we have to go to the Father and confess it. And when we do, we have to go back to whatever brother and sister or sister that we sinned against and confess it and ask forgiveness, yes, and receive it, yes, from both parties, yes, because we're free. But I'm telling you, the secret to victorious battle, so far, we've got more armor to cover, but we're going to learn this incrementally, is this. Remind yourself daily of the doctrine of absolute truth and stand truthfully. Remind yourself every day of the doctrine of Christ's imputed righteousness and stand obediently. Remind yourself every day of the doctrine of the gospel of peace and stand fearlessly. And in the end, you will be found, even after the evil day, having done everything, to stand. You'll be standing. And you will be rewarded with infinite treasure in Christ for faithfulness before him. And when you were rewarded... You would look at the Father as best He has revealed Himself in the Son and say, yes, I stood, but even that was by Your grace. And we will worship. And Father.